in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16 with me. Thank you so much. We're going to read from verses 13 down to verse 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. This is one of the most recounted stories of the New Testament that you have just read with me tonight. A moment when God in Jesus Christ encounters his disciples in a most profound and an unexpected way, in an unexpected place. The story is recorded also in Mark chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 9. And at the center of it is this fundamental question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to our society? Who is Jesus to individuals? Who is Jesus to his disciples? And who is Jesus to one disciple in particular, Simon Peter? The event takes place in Caesarea Philippi, a town about in the very north of Israel, in the area known as Dan. It was a city that was built um, many hundreds of years before Christ's ministry on earth, and a couple of hundred years before his uh, visit to this. There's no record of him actually going into Caesarea Philippi, but certainly into the district. A couple of hundred years before this event takes place, a huge rock formation that exists still in Caesarea Philippi had had a part of it gouged out and turned into a temple for the god Pan. It was a a huge place, and and water gushed out of it, and it became a place where Pan worshippers would go and bring with them babies. And they would, not all of them, but some of them, would throw the children into the water as an offering to the god Pan. If the child disappeared, then they would have believed that the god Pan had accepted their offering. If the child hit their heads against the rocks, they would see blood pouring out of it and they would realize that the child's 
sacrifice had not been accepted by Pan. Either way, the child died. It was a terrible place. And that rock formation from where that water came and where that sacrificing took place became so sinister, became so dark, that it was known as the gates of hell, which is important because of the story. And what Jesus says about what will happen in this place in a few moments when we get to it. It was also a scene where in the Old Testament, one of the Old Testament kings, Jeroboam, had set up an alternative altar for the people of Israel so they didn't have to travel all the way down to the south to Jerusalem to worship. They could go there into the area of Dan and close by would have been one of the alternative altars for the people of Israel. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, this is what the Old Testament says about this area. Uh, uh, Jeroboam speaking, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan or in the area of Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. They'd rather go there because it was easier than to Jerusalem where worship cost something. So into this place, with all of this dark history, this place of memory of failure, this place of death and uh, sacrifice and paganism, this remarkable encounter takes place between Jesus and his disciples. And in this story, these seven or eight short verses that we have read together, we see a scene unfolding. It is a scene of two great questions, a scene of great confession, and a scene of great declaration. The great questions are questions that penetrate our age. And I want to look at them with you in a moment or two. But I want to first think about the scene. What scene do you find yourself in tonight? What situation are you in? A good one? A bad one? An indifferent one? Do you find yourself facing circumstances that you think God couldn't possibly help me here? Are you in a, surrounded and worked by people that are laughing at you, making fun of your faith? Is your family in crisis? What are you going through tonight? Wherever you are, God can meet you. Whatever you are facing, God can meet you. As we were singing the words of that last song about trusting God through change and trusting him through uncertainty, I had a profound sense that for at least one person here tonight, that is exactly the context you are in. A new environment, an unexpected place, an unexpected set of circumstances, and you feel a little unsure. You feel um, a little shaken at the core of who you are, and you're wondering, can God see me through this? And I think he's brought you to this service tonight to say, yes, I can. Whatever situation you are facing, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, None of them are so difficult or so dark that God cannot be present. This is the heart of Christian hope. And I am convinced that God is present by the power of his Holy Spirit here tonight to minister into our lives if we will let him. To touch us and to bring courage and confidence for some of us to introduce us to Jesus for the first time here or online at home. But God is present in every circumstance of life and is able to make sense of what seems wasted or difficult or dark or painful or sad. The late Eugene Peterson, the um, paraphraser of the New Testament and the Old Testament in what has become called The Message, once wrote this in a book called The Jesus Way, a conversation on the ways that Jesus is the way. The way of Jesus cannot be imposed or mapped. It requires an active participation in following Jesus as he leads us through sometimes strange 
and sometimes unfamiliar territory. In circumstances that become clear only in the hesitations and questionings, in the pauses and reflections where we engage in prayerful conversation with one another and with him. When you find yourself in unfamiliar territory, you can lean into God and discover that he is faithful. Discover that he is strong enough and good enough and kind enough and merciful enough. And the circumstances you and I find ourselves in tonight might not be the ones of our choosing. If we were writing our life story, we might write, we might write a different chapter for this season in our lives, right? But God can be met in these circumstances, in these strange and unusual places that we have to do life because all of us find ourselves in strange and unusual places at one time or another. So the two great questions, one contained in verse 13 and one contained in verse 15. The great question of verse 13 is, who do people say that I am? The great question of verse 15 is, who do you say that I am? Let's think about that first great question first. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? In 2015 and in 2016, in GB, the Evangelical Alliance conducted some research which became known as the Talking Jesus Project. It asked people in the public a series of questions about who Jesus was, what they believed about Jesus, what they understood him to be, who they understood him to be. Um, the results are interesting. The survey took place amongst adults in 2015 and amongst young people in December 2016. 67% of the adults questioned and 55% of the young people knew at least one practicing Christian. 33%, a third of the young people, and 9% of the adults were not sure if they believed in God anymore. 40% of the adults and 46% of the young people, that's almost half, were not sure if Jesus was ever a real person. 43% of the adults and 37% of the young people believed that Jesus rose from the dead. One in five non-Christian adults, 19%, and one in six non-Christian young people, 16%, were interested and keen to talk more about Jesus to the person who asked them questions about him after their conversation. 42% of non-Christian adults and 35% of non-Christian young people said that they felt glad that they didn't share the same faith as the Christian who shared with them. We are facing a cultural change about understanding who God is and who Jesus is, the likes of which has not been experienced ever before in Western European society. That, those statistics are GB. There wasn't a similar survey taking place in Northern Ireland. But I would hazard a guess that our figures would be much lower than that now. But unless God intervenes, unless there is a significant change in our culture, unless there is a significant confidence in the church, in 10 or 15 years, our figures will look exactly like that. And you and I are alive at this point to consider who Jesus is and make decisions about how we respond to him. And I don't think I'm being melodramatic. I just think I'm being honest when I say to you that the decisions that we make on nights like tonight can shape the destiny of Northern Ireland and the island of Ireland who we believe Jesus to be, what that will mean, not just for some words that come out of our mouths, 
But the priorities of our wallets, our careers, where we live, what we do with our money, how we make our choices, where we bring up our children, how we will connect with other people. I am utterly convinced, not because we are some kind of uber special church, but one bunch of people gripped by the reality of answering the question who Jesus is could see the island of Ireland changed. One group of people, one generation. The church of Jesus Christ is never beyond one generation from extinction because God has no grandchildren. We must each each decide for ourselves who God is and make a response to that. The response of the disciples to the question, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, verse 14. Others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. An indication that the culture knew who Jesus was or thought they knew who Jesus was. They'd heard of him. They were trying to work out who he was. And as they debated it and discussed it and talked about it, the disciples were able to relay back to Jesus, well, some people think that you are a a figure from the Old Testament that um, is pointing toward God. Others think that you are this rogue and um, mysterious character, John the Baptist, who by this time had been beheaded because of his ministry and dead and buried. Come back to life. And others think that you are Elijah, one of the most significant spiritual figures in the history of Israel, who was to point to the Messiah, the one who was to come. None of them said, you are the Son of God. None of them said, they think you are the Christ. Not even the disciples said that, as we will see in a moment or two. All these competing ideas were flying around about who Jesus was. He was important, but not God. He was special, but not divine. He was sent, but in a a different way to how he was actually sent. Our culture has so many answers to the question, who do you think Jesus is? Some of them are startling. Some of them are heartening. Some of them are inspiring. Some of them are worrying. I have seen people in our culture answer the question, who is Jesus in the profoundest and most beautiful of ways? Men and women who have surrendered their lives to him, discovered who he is, and everything has been changed for them. I could take you to countless churches across Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland tonight where women and men are faithfully living out their calling of who they believe Jesus to be. But I could also take you to many contexts where Jesus is perceived as a moral teacher, as a good example, as someone who is to be revered but not followed, who's to be listened to but not obeyed. I could take you to churches that would preach that. I could take you to ministers that would say that. But my question is, what does our culture say about Jesus and how do we respond to that? The famous pop star Elton John in 2010 was asked what he thought of Jesus in a wide-ranging interview for a US magazine. And he said, I think Jesus was a compassionate, super intelligent gay man who understood human problems. On the cross, he forgave the people who crucified him. Jesus wanted us to be loving and forgiving. Christopher Hitchens, one of the famous um, great atheists of the last 30 or 40 years who died a few years ago, his brother became an apologist, had a a vindictive, angry streak toward Christianity and anything religious and hated Jesus. In his book, God is Not Great, here is what he said. And I don't want you to be offended by this quote. I'm going to read it all. It's not my words. There is just a section of it I want you to understand. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just giving you the context of Christopher Hitchens and what he said. My own opinion is enough for me. And I claim the right to have it defended against any consensus, any majority, 
anywhere, any place, any time. And anyone who disagrees with me can pick a number, get in line, and kiss my... That's hardly an open mind, is it? Compare that to William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who knew who Jesus was and was so worried about what was happening in the church at the end of the 19th century, when he founded the Salvation Army, which he wanted to call the, the, the Volunteer Army, he wrote a book around about the same time called Darkest England and the Way Out. And here's one of the things that he said. The chief danger that confronts the coming century, that was the 20th century. The chief danger that confronts the 20th century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. The famous businessman, Canadian businessman, Charles Templeton, was a colleague and friend of Billy Graham, a co-evangelist in the 1940s. In the 1950s, Charles Templeton lost his faith he went on to become a leading figure in Canadian society. He became a journalist and built a, a media empire, Canada's equivalent of Rupert Murdoch. And not, not long before he died, the famous American pastor, John Ortberg, went to his home to interview him, to talk about the Billy Graham years and how he had worked with that famous evangelist. And as he talked about it, Templeton had given up faith, he'd given up Christianity. As he talked about it, Ortberg listened intently to his conversation and uh, he heard Templeton talk about how the church had disappointed him, how Christians had disappointed him, how, other, um, how faith had disappointed him, how life had disappointed him. Towards the end of the interview, John Ortberg said, and what about Jesus? Charles Templeton put down his pen and he closed his book and his eyes filled with tears. And this old man coming to the end of his life said, I need to stop the interview. Ortberg said, why? He said, I miss him very much. And left the room. I could give you a hundred different versions of who Jesus is in our society. From the most elevated and important to the basest and most ridiculous. But my question for you is the second question. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think the Son of Man is? Is. Who do you think this character from this story is? And don't for a moment, if you will give me your attention, think that I'm only talking to those people that are not Christians. I'm talking to every one of you because I'm utterly convinced that this is a question that we must wrestle with as followers of Jesus Christ, not only those that are considering following him. I love this church family. I love that we get to do life together. When I'm away, I can't wait to get back. And when I'm um, back, I'm, I'm just, I, I so enjoy being with you, being part of what God is doing, seeing and moving in lives, catching up with people. I don't have to say a lot. Just to be with you lifts my heart. But I am looking out tonight at a, a whole range of people. Look at churches, half the churches in Northern Ireland would give their, half their lives to see some of the generations that are sitting in this congregation tonight. And I look out at you guys, and I want to speak to those of you that are under, um, pick a figure. <laughs> those of you that are on the brink of making life-changing choices about careers, about when to get married, about 
where to live, about what to do with your lives and what to do with your money. That might be a third ager. That might be somebody coming up to retirement. That might be somebody youngish like you guys right in front of me. Who do you think Jesus is? Look at me when I ask that question. Because this is probably the most important question of your life. And don't answer it just with words. Because I believe that God could take you and you and you and you and you. I'm not going to go all the way around. And with your answer, change the world. With those of you that are coming up to a place where you have choices to make, you've got a bit of extra money, you've finished your job, you're coming to retirement, you're working out what comes next. You're maybe thinking of buying a little place in Spain or in uh, France or Portugal and going backwards and forwards four or five times a year. What if God asks you to do something different? This question, who do you think I am, isn't just about the verbal response. It's about what you do with your life, sister. What you do with the rest of your future, brother. And I am convinced that the world could hinge upon decisions like this. And if we let God in, if we respond with open hearts, who knows what the future could hold? And instead of being those people that pray every week for revival and long for God to break in, we could be a group of people that see him break in. That give him space in our own lives, in our own finances, in our own families, in our own dreams and imaginations to do something which is remarkable. But it all hinges on this question. Is he a hobby? Is he a pastime? Is he up there with your golf and your cricket? Particularly if you're English and you've won the World Cup, it'll not happen for a long time again, I tell you. (laughs) Or your rugby, or your gym. Who do you think he is? Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And only one person answered them. All of these disciples and only one saw it. Wow. These great men and women of faith and only one said what we were about to read. You are the Christ. The son of the living God. Simon Peter says to him in verse 16. What a remarkable declaration. You are the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the sent one. You are the one to rescue us. You are the one to set us free. You are the one to bring hope. You are the one to bring transformation. You are the one to bring life. You are the long-awaited answer to our prayers. You are the one that we have yearned for and longed for. You are the word that breaks the silence. You are the light that illuminates the darkness. You are the joy that shatters our mourning. You are the hope that transforms our despair. You are the Christ. The son of the living God. A remarkable phrase for a Jewish person to use. Not simply another person, but sent by God. The one to rescue us. The one that carries something of God's presence and power into our lives. The the, the center of all things. And at no point does Jesus say, you're wrong, Peter. Stop it. That great declaration is the rock upon which the church is built. It's not Peter. It's not even Peter's confession. Let me explain why. Peter's confession is of the Christ before the crucifixion. It is of the Christ before the resurrection. 
It is the Christ before the giving of the Holy Spirit. It is this central reality, which is the rock upon which the church is built. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the one. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the hope of the world. Church stands or falls on that confession. Not on all of our meetings, not on all of our plans, not on all of our great agendas. Are we going to be faithful to this great declaration? When I got to church this morning, driving up, Debbie and I and Rio, and I had been away for a few days, and we were talking, coming up in the car, Debbie and I, and said, we can't wait to get to church simply to worship with God's people. Because together we are saying, we believe in this man. He is the center of our lives. He is our true north. He is our hope. He is the savior of the world. There is no one else. There's no political program. There's no educational program. There's no denomination. There's no theological teaching program. There's no degree. There's no master's. There's no doctorate. There's no formation source. There's nothing that can bring life more than this declaration. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. If you need a rescuer, it is Jesus. If you need a deliverer, it is Jesus. If you need hope, it is Jesus. If you need life, it is Jesus. If you need a fresh start, it is Jesus. If you need joy, it is Jesus. If you need forgiveness, it is Jesus. If you need something to change, it is only Christ that can bring it about. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who will never change, the one who is always the same, the one who is constant through thick and thin, even in places like Caesarea Philippi, where children are thrown into water and drowned. The scene of this great declaration is remarkable. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Think for a moment about the scene of where this great statement takes place. Beside a, a rock under which thousands of children are sacrificed, Jesus says, I am still in control. In a nation that is going to be drawn into thousands of children being sacrificed, God is still on the throne. In a society as part of the United Kingdom that has seen nine million children taken from this earth since 1967, more than the entire Holocaust, God sees, God knows, and God cares. And in this place, right beside a hellhole called the gates of hell, there is a Profound declaration of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus goes on to say, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's standing beside the gates of hell. He's standing right beside the gates of hell. And in this great declaration, he is saying, 
these are not stronger than me. This culture is not stronger than Jesus. Our society is not stronger than Jesus. Who he is and what he wants to do in the world, he will accomplish and he will declare. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Have you ever thought about that phrase? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is not an assault of hell on earth. That is an assault of heaven on hell. Gates do not prevail the other way around. This is God's people, God's kingdom, and God's power pushing against the darkness. Not, God, not darkness and evil pushing against God. It is the other way around. The language is the other way around. The grammar is the other way around. And the intention is the other way around. Because when Jesus Christ was crucified, between his crucifixion and his resurrection, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that something profound and mysterious happened. He entered Hades, the Jewish underworld, and he declared freedom to the captives. Christ on the cross plunders death, plunders sin, plunders darkness, and pushes it back. We Christians so often run away from the darkness. We hide away. We build fortresses of faith, churches that are separated from the world, afraid that we might be contaminated or infected with some kind of disease. Whereas the church that Jesus Christ creates, the, Christ, the church that Jesus gives birth to, is a church that advances against the darkness, that pushes in against the source of the enemy and declares in darkness Christ is light and in despair Christ is hope. And Jesus says here, the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. Sisters and brothers, if I can speak to those of you that are Christians for a moment, let me make it very clear. We are on the winning side. God will have his way. And he invites all who will respond to him to lay their lives down to him. And how, what is the key? What is the mechanism? What is the bridge that carries you into this declaration? Church attendance, no. Giving, no. Praying, no. Bible reading, no. What leads you into this community of hope and life is coming under the Lordship of Christ. And that happens when you declare this. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And no matter how dark European culture might get, God is brighter. No matter how dark the days ahead might be, God is greater. Should every church in Northern Ireland close, God is still on the throne. Should every preacher close their Bible and walk away, God still reigns. This declaration stands the test of time. This powerful announcement that we are to push against the darkness. I do not want to give my life to maintaining some small patch of ground. I didn't become a Christian to stand on smaller ground for 50 or 60 years and then die and go to heaven. I became a Christian because I believed that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, and that he had the power to transform lives, families, communities, churches, nations, and cultures. And I will not stand quiet. I will not remain silent as darkness looms and threatens our society. I won't do it. 
I want to be part of a community that declares with confidence, humility, grace, and determination, Christ is the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Messiah. There is no situation too dark for him. There is no circumstance too difficult for him. That's why Peter, Jesus goes on to say to Peter, this is the thing that gives you authority in heaven and earth, who I am. In verses 18 and 19 and 20, when he talks about binding and loosing on heaven and on earth, he's saying, when you have this revelation, when you understand who I am, when you see it clearly, and when it shapes your life, when it beats at the center of your heart, nothing is stronger than it. You can walk through death with this beating heart. You can walk through despair with it. You can walk through the worst and darkest of circumstances with this beating declaration at your heart. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, to see a church grasp it. So what do we do with all of that? Leave and say, that was a great meeting. He got a bit hot. God invites us to respond. He invites you to respond. Make your career choices based on this. Marry people based on this. Fall in love based on this. Decide what to do with your retirement based on this. Work out how you will connect with your neighbors based on this. Think through how you will live the rest of your life based on this. How you will handle colleagues, how you will conduct yourself in the public square based on this. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Become a seed of hope in your community and see everything you are and everything you do as an act of worship. If you lead a band, lead it to the glory of God. Doesn't mean you always have to play Christian songs, by the way. What is a Christian song? Anyway, that's another conversation. If you work in a hotel, work there for the glory of God. If you're a preacher or a pastor or a doctor, serve for the glory of God. If you're a grandparent or a carer, if you're a dancer, where did she go? If you're a dancer, dance for the glory of God. Let this declaration be the beating heart of who you are and let it become a holy obsession. Let it capture your imagination. Because who knows, God might have in this room tonight or watching online, preachers and pastors and engineers and politicians of the future and educators and businesswomen, men and women who will come up with great ideas, physiotherapists that could invent techniques and programs that could help countless numbers of people. God's kingdom spills out beyond the confines of Sunday gatherings and touches everything that we are and everything that we do. And when we capture this, I live my life for Christ, the son of the living God. Everything is changed. Our whole lives become holy. Everything we are becomes an act of worship. And all God asks is that we kneel before him. The irony is that while God doesn't need us, but still wants us, we desperately need God, but don't really want him most of the time. At the beginning of the life of Jesus and at the end of the life of Jesus, there was a moment when somebody had to make a choice. At the beginning of his life, an innkeeper had to make room for him. When everybody else was saying no. And at the end of his life, a wealthy Jewish leader had to give him a tomb because he didn't have anything else.
You are an innkeeper. And you must make room for him if you want this truth to flourish in your heart and in your soul. You are the owner of a body that you can give to Jesus. Take my hands, take my feet, take my eyes, take my living, take my creativity, take my imagination, take my nursing, take my children, take my future, take my hopes and my dreams. I lay them at your feet like Joseph did with his tomb that you might occupy them. The power and the implications of this confession and for our day and our generation, if we will let it touch us, is remarkable. But it all hinges on what you believe Jesus to be. The gospel is absurd and the life of Jesus is meaningless. Unless we believe that he lived, died and rose again with one purpose in mind to redeem the world. Not to make people with better morals, but to create a community of prophets and professional lovers, men and women, who will surrender to the mystery of the fire of the Spirit that burns within us. People who would live in greater faithfulness to the ever-present Word of God, who would enter into the center of it all, who would stand at the very heart of the mystery of Christ, and step into the center of the flame of love that consumes us and purifies us and sets everything ablaze with God's peace, God's joy, God's boldness, God's extravagance, God's love. That is what it means to be a Christian. And I invite you to give God everything that remains of your life, unashamedly, unapologetically, because in doing so, you discover life. One of the most influential preachers in my own journey is the Welsh preacher that led Westminster Chapel for so many years, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Towards the end of his life, he said this, I will not glory, even in my orthodoxy, for even that can become an idol if I make a god of it. I will glory in one thing and one thing alone. Jesus Christ. Let us rejoice in him, in all his fullness, and in him alone. So like Jesus asked his disciples, I ask you, who do you say he is? And may God, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, Reveal to you as you sit here that he is the Christ. The son of the living God. And that he is worth everything. Amen.